Ezekiel chapter 33, we want to look at these first verses, verses 1 through 20. How many of you lived in places where there's lots of wildfires, lots of fire danger? Yeah, a lot of us. Living in or near the foothills of Southern California growing up, I can recall several fires where we were warned to evacuate on one or, uh, well, actually on more than one occasion, members of my family heard the warning but refused to heed it. Uh, Luckily for me, at the time I was too young, at the time I thought it was unlucky because I wanted to hang back too and, you know, fight the fire. Uh, But uh, uh, I remember the Panorama Fire in particular, which uh, destroyed... Uh, two or three hundred homes coming through Waterman Canyon down into San Bernardino. My next oldest brother, Richard, decided that he would ignore the evacuation warning because he wanted to stay and with his garden hose help fight the fire and save his shake-roofed house. Uh, and uh, uh, somehow his house was spared and his life was spared, and you know, but we didn't know for a day or two if he was alive or dead uh, when we did get back up into his neighborhood all the houses around him were gone uh, and I don't think it was so much his hose work as it was just dumb luck uh, you know and every year you sadly you hear at least one story usually more about somebody who was told to evacuate and they just didn't believe it for whatever reason or they thought that uh, you know they were going to be able to to fight the fire and save their mobile home, uh, which, you know, hey, I mean, you know, those things are valuable. But uh, anyway, uh, I suggest that if a police officer or a fireman, firefighter comes to your door, knocks on the door and says, you need to evacuate, then go ahead and do it. Uh, it, It's prudent, to say the least. The emergency services people, both fire and police, always did their duty when we were living down there, it was up to us to act accordingly. If we died, then it was on us. In chapter 33, we have a review of Ezekiel's call as a watchman to Israel. He's been warning the people for some seven years. In verses 21 and 22, word will finally reach the exiles in Babylon that Jerusalem has fallen to the invading Babylonian army. Uh, Just to bring you up to date historically, uh, there were three incursions by Nebuchadnezzar's armies against against Judah and against Jerusalem, and uh, they each time got a little bit more serious, and uh, there were already exiles in Babylon. That's where Ezekiel was. That's who he was ministering to. Uh, But they all had hope that the Babylonian army would withdraw and they would soon be able to go back uh, and live in Jerusalem. Even though Jeremiah had been telling those folks in Judah for years and Ezekiel in uh, Babylon that that is absolutely not what's going to happen. The Babylonian exile is here to stay for the next 70 years. And so uh, he had been warning them of this and now Jerusalem was going to fall Everything Ezekiel had been prophesying had come to pass just as he'd said. He had been faithful as the watchman of Israel. Now, we heard this, if you've been here for these studies or if you're really familiar with Ezekiel, we've heard these things almost verbatim 
back in chapters 3 and 18. So why the repetition here in chapter 33? Well, for one thing, uh, repetition is good, especially when it comes to spiritual things and to spiritual truths. One of the things that we recommend, it seems obvious, but, but everybody kind of has to be reminded, if you have children... Just keep reading them the same Bible stories over and over again. Get those, you know, the different stages of their life where they have the Bible and pictures for little eyes or whatever the current, uh, you know, Bibles are for kids right now. Just keep going through them uh, chapter by chapter and giving those same stories. And the more familiar they are, you know, what a blessing if your child says, I've heard that story before, Papa. Oh, great, great. Tell me what happens in it. You know, and, and, you know, to have that really ingrained in them uh, because they're going to, each time they go through it, get a little bit deeper into it, get a little bit deeper knowledge. Uh, and they'll, uh, you know, avoid the kind of biblical ignorance that most of us had, quite honestly, growing up. If you didn't grow up in a really solid Christian home or you got saved later in life, you're, a, you're biblically ignorant. Uh, you, you, you hear things and, you, you know, you realize that you got most of your theology from watching the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston every Easter. Uh, and you go around, you know, every time you read in the Bible, you think Moses is repeated three times. Moses, Moses, Moses. Because that's what Nefertiri used to, she was, remember, in the movie, she's in love with Moses and he's kind of glowing all the time, you know, he's like stoned and uh, stoned on God, you know, and stuff. And she's, Moses, Moses, Moses. And uh, it's crazy, the kind of theology uh, that you have. So, uh, just, so repetition is a really, really good thing. And for another thing, even though Jerusalem falls just as prophesied, God was still reaching out to the exiles, seeking their repentance. And so he's using it to, to say, hey, you know, what I've told you has come to pass you can trust me, I'm reaching out to you, uh, let's get right. And so we begin in verse 1. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, speak to the children of your people and say to them, When I bring the sword upon a land, and the people of the land take a man from their territory and make him their watchman. When he sees the sword coming upon the land, if he blows the trumpet and warns the people, then whoever hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning, if the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet, but did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself, but he who takes warning will save his life. So this is kind of Watchman 101, basic Watchman class. In those days, the cities erected towers, either freestanding or on the walls, if the city was large enough to have a wall, and they would set watchmen to watch for the approach of enemies. It wasn't much of a warning. Uh, it was as far as the eye could see. But it could mean the difference between life and death. You'd be going about your business when all of a sudden you'd hear the unique trumpet blast that warned of an impending enemy invasion. Now, we still have this kind of warning system today. Civil defense sirens or air raid sirens are still around. Uh, they still blow the one in. Do, do we have them here in Hanford? Does it ever go off, the, the civil defense? I know in Lemoore every now and then the siren goes, and you're like, wow, you know, brings me back. Because we had those in San Bernardino all the time at Norton Air Force Base, civil defense sirens. It's crazy. 
And uh, you almost don't know what to do about it anymore, you know, and stuff. But it goes off. Uh, the emergency broadcasting system, one of my favorite times of the afternoon. When you're watching television and that little thing, this is a test of the emergency broad. If this was a real emergency, your TV wouldn't work. Uh, but, no, it doesn't say that, but, you know. And then there are high-tech warning systems like uh, the automatic phone dialing systems that they've put in place in some communities where if they have to evacuate a community, they just punch a button and it dials everybody with a recorded message and says, Get out of your house, you know. Uh, and, and so they're doing that. Um, I now follow the Department of Homeland Security on Twitter. I don't know if you knew you could do that. Uh, they, uh, part of the emergency planning in the Department of Homeland Security is to use Facebook and Twitter in an emergency. And so you Facebookers uh, and tweets... Uh, you're going you're gonna to have the, you know, as long as the cell towers are still up, you know. I mean, all this is dependent on things, infrastructure and all that. But, but we're familiar with warnings, uh, and, and we're familiar with people who ignore warnings. In every great disaster movie, there's always one guy or family who ignores the warning, right? And you're thinking, get out of there. You're going to die, you, you know, idiot. Get out of there. And sure enough, they die some heinous death. You know, it's usually the guy that you know that you want to die anyway. But uh, you know, sometimes not. You know, movies. You know, they're all they're, there's nothing new under the sun. But uh, you know, it's like us, my family down in Southern California. It's like, yeah, we're so what? You know, my brother, he had to actually hide in his house because they came beating on doors. You know, get out. You know, the, all the everything here is going to be destroyed, and he's hiding so that they don't. And and then you know, I mean, his house isn't even that nice. It's a nice house. It's nicer than my, but it's not like it's not even like a mansion. It was, you know, it's an average. In fact, it's a below average house in today's market. And so uh, I don't I don't know what a person is thinking when they're trying to save their house from a raging fire and people are saying, "Get out! You're going to die." Oh, I just think I'll hang out here, you know. So that's the basic idea. God had sent them a watchman and told them what to do. Now, verse six. Uh, if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet and the people are not warned and the sword comes and takes any person from among them, he's taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. Now, the watchman had his responsibility and it was a very serious one. Should he be absent from his watch, fall asleep on his watch, or simply ignore or misinterpret what was occurring, then his life was required. <clears throat> my goal, or my thought, is better safe than sorry. Uh, you know, when you're when you're looking at the radar and you're seeing a bunch of blips coming, and you think, oh, I wonder if this is an invasion. Uh, maybe, maybe not. Uh, hey, let's sound the warning. Let's you know at least call the general, wake up the admiral, do what you need to do uh, because this could be serious. Ezekiel wasn't a military watchman. He wasn't up in a tower of brick and mortar. He was the spiritual watchman. To God's people. In verses 7 and 8 and 9, God explains a little bit about the responsibility of the spiritual watchman. He says in verse 7, So you, son of man, I made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore you shall hear a word from my mouth and warn them for me. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Nevertheless, if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, 
and he does not turn from his way. He'll die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. Now, I want to say this. It's important that we bear in mind none of this has anything to do with eternal salvation. God was warning his people about temporal earthly punishment that was the result of disobeying his law, but no one was saved by obeying the law and no one was lost by disobeying it. People are always throughout history saved the same way. They are saved by grace through faith in the work of God. They believe God and He accounts it to them as righteousness. He declares a sinner righteous. He justifies a believing sinner based on what Jesus Christ has done. Now, Jacob was talking earlier about inductive Bible study, about knowing the text in its context. Ezekiel is not writing about the eternal salvation of the nation of Israel, certainly not about our eternal salvation. This is not a verse that says if you don't tell everybody you meet about Jesus that you're going to forfeit your salvation uh, and go to hell. And uh, so this is about the temporal lives of the Jewish people. Now, it's very serious still. Uh, I don't want to take the seriousness away from it. We'll talk about that, but we need to be clear. <clears throat> During the time of Ezekiel's life, the rule of God was the law, the Mosaic law, the Moses, Moses, Moses law, if you will. Some of them were saved. Some of them were not saved. But all of them were required to obey the law of Moses or suffer the consequences laid out in the law for their disobedience. For example... The Babylonian captivity that was occurring in Ezekiel's time lasted 70 years. Why did it last 70 years? Why not 69 or 75? 75 is a good number. We like 75, right? 70th birthday, eh, okay, that's great. 75, wow, that's a milestone. Why? I don't know, it's just one of those things. So, if I'm writing the Bible, I go with 75, but... No, it's a 70-year captivity. Well, here's why. It was because the law commanded the Israelites to leave their land lie fallow every seventh year as a Sabbath year to the Lord. The Jews had ignored their Sabbaths for a period of years. Thus, under God's law, they owed God those Sabbath years that the land had not lay fallow. Earlier in the book, we saw Ezekiel lay on his right side for 390 days. And they, scholars believe it was for 390 years of iniquity for the children of Israel. Then he lay on his left side for 40 days. Scholars say it's for the 40 years of iniquity of the people of Judah to the south. Thus, the total years of his iniquity were 430. So we might say that for 430 years, the Jews ignored their Sabbath years. And you have to remember, within that time, there were also years of jubilee. Every 50th year was a Sabbath year as well, a year of jubilee when debts were forgiven. I call my creditors regularly and let them know that this is the year of jubilee and uh, I can expect a zero balance. They, of course, turn me over to a collection agent or something. But anyway, uh, so there was the jubilee. So each 49-year jubilee cycle contains eight Sabbath years. It's, the math is mind-boggling. I could never be a Jew just because I can't figure out the math. I mean, I, how you figure out the Sabbath and what you can and can't do. If I was 
if I was Jewish or if I was one of these, you know, Sabbatarians, a Christian that wants to keep the Sabbath, I'd just have to stay in bed the entire time. And then I'd find out that there was probably some regulation or prohibition about that. And so I just couldn't do it because the math. But I did some research, and if my math is correct, there were a total of 70 Sabbath years during those 430 years. Now, you might read other scholars because they do a quicker math. They say, well, 70 Sabbaths, there must have been 400 and uh, 90 years, you know, because you divide 70 into 490 and all that and stuff. But the Jews, when they calculate, they take into account the Jubilee years as well, which were different from the Sabbath years. So, but at any rate, God is keeping track in heaven because they were living under the law. This is life under the law. There goes a Sabbath. There's another missed Sabbath. There's another missed Sabbath. You know, we're getting pretty close to 70 Sabbaths now, so why don't we go into the Babylonian captivity while I let my land lie fallow for 70 straight years to catch up to what you guys disobeyed. So we're definitely under the law. Second Chronicles 36.21 It was to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. As long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Life under the law. We're not under the law. I think we can still make some application, however, if we're careful. Maybe the best way to approach this is to listen to something the Apostle Paul said, addressing the elders of the church in Ephesus. He called them to himself and was talking to them for the last time on earth. He told them in Acts 20, 26, and 27, he said, Therefore I testify to you this day, I'm innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. It's a very Ezekiel-like statement, isn't it? It, it's, it's drawing from his knowledge of the Old Testament where he says, hey, I am kind of like a watchman, like Ezekiel was. Paul was referring to this idea of being a spiritual watchman. We should think of ourselves as those called to sound the warning. As soon as you become a Christian, you know, there's all these great metaphors and pictures of the soldier and the householder and the steward and the farmer and the athlete. And another thing that you are is a watchman uh, for other people. And we should think about ourselves called to sound a warning. Our warning is to declare what God has said about life and death and eternal life because men are not just in danger of dying, as bad as that might be, they're in danger of dying eternally for want of the knowledge of the gospel. We are to think of our sharing the word with them as a matter of life and death. And so, you know, we get off on a theological tangent here about, you know, forfeiting salvation and all this. I think it's serious enough to say I'm a Christian and I need to be about the business of sharing Christ with others because it's a matter of life and death. All of us, I'm sure, whether we have the skill or not, but especially if you have some training, I mean, if you come across some kind of a serious situation, an automobile accident or you see a house that's on fire or something, your first instinct is to want to help those people. And, and, and other people risk their lives. Uh, sometimes they're not even employed to do it, but they risk their lives to save other people because it's a life and death situation. And so we are to think of ourselves in that sense of, hey, the people that I encounter, this is life and death. Not just physical life and death. If they die without knowing Christ, then that's eternal death. And so... I need to be thinking about the gospel, 
thinking about how to share the gospel, how to give out the entire counsel of the word of God. Now, beginning with verse 10, God turned his attention back on the hearers. He says, therefore, you, O son of man, say to the house of Israel, thus you say, if our transgressions and our sins lie upon us and we pine away in them, how can we then live? Now, in an earlier passage, the exiles had complained that the sins they were being held accountable for were not really their own sins. They were their fathers. They said, hey, there's nothing we can do because God's holding us accountable for what our parents did. We went through that and we saw that that's not true. Now they're acknowledging the sins, but the new complaint is that it's obviously too late to do anything about them because God was judging them and what are you going to do? One thing you see over and over in the Bible is that it's very hard for people to take personal responsibility for their sin. It started in the Garden of Eden with Adam blaming Eve and Eve blaming Satan. You see it with Moses' brother Aaron, one of my favorite stories of all time. Moses comes down from the mountain. The people are worshiping the golden calf. They're having an orgy, basically. And, and you know, Moses says, what's this? What's up with this? And Aaron said, well, I got some gold and threw it in the fire and this golden calf came out. Yeah, that's not exactly what happened. And I think everybody knows that. And it's just astonishing that people don't want to take personal responsibility for sin. One thing to admire about David is that he stepped up and acknowledged his sins. It wasn't always easy. He didn't always do it immediately. Sometimes he had to be busted out on it. But man, it's like this last Sunday. Where, you know, Ahimelech runs down and says, Doeg killed everybody. David said, I knew it. It's my fault. I knew he was going to tell Saul, all those people are dead because of me. He didn't say, all those people are dead because of Saul. He said, no, that's, this is my responsibility. I knew I should have known better. Uh, later on, when he gets busted by Nathan for sinning, committing adultery and murder, he, he'll say in the Psalms, I've sinned against you and against you only, God. And uh, I mean, he, he understood and took personal responsibility. One reason I think Christianity, in general, might be a little anemic today in our country is that we live at a time when people are finding all kinds of new ways to blame other people or other conditions for what we would have historically called their sin. Every day it seems a new syndrome is discovered that explains why I sin, why it is not my responsibility when I do. Instead, we ought to confess, which simply means to agree with God that His forgiveness can then cleanse us and put us back in the game. And so we just need to confess our sin. But it's hard. Um, in counseling, you know, you're talking to people, and it's, it's hard. Even when people are busted, it's hard for them to, to just admit it without blaming. You know, when they start saying things, well, I don't want to blame my wife, but I'm going to anyway. That's, that's you know, I remember Pastor Romaine, who was Chuck Smith's assistant for so many years, he said he never listened to anybody until they said the word but. Because everything they said before that was a lie. I'm a wicked person, I'm a terrible person, I'm this, I'm that. But, I didn't have a dad, or I didn't have a mom, or I was this, or I was that. And so that's when you start listening, because everything else is just an excuse. You know, so, uh, confess your sin. And He's faithful and just to forgive you your sin and to cleanse you from your unrighteousness. Verse 11, say to them, As I live, says the Lord God, I don't have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, 
but that the wicked turn from his ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. For why should you die, O house of Israel? The Babylonian captivity was a discipline for disobedience, but individual Jews need not die on account of the discipline. The events leading up to the captivity and the years it lasted could be times of obedience and relative success for individual Jews. Indeed, as the history unfolds, when the captivity finally ends and the Jews can return to Jerusalem, many chose instead to remain outside the promised land to stay in Babylon because they had created decent lives for themselves there. We're talking in these verses then about the quality of their lives under the law on the earth. No one should expect either preferential or deferential treatment from the Lord. The Lord was going to judge them on the basis of the law. And so verse 12, Therefore you, O son of man, say to the children of your people, The righteousness of the righteous man shall not deliver him in the day of his transgression. As for the wickedness of the wicked, he shall not fall because of it in the day that he turns from his wickedness, nor shall the righteous be able to live because of his righteousness in the day that he sins. Now by the righteous man, it's clear God meant someone who was counting on being more good than bad and that it would cancel out any current or ongoing transgression. It sounds a little weird, but that's essentially the thinking of most people in the world. They might admit, if they're pressed, that they're not perfect. It's hard to get people to admit that they're not good. Uh, and so ask them if they're perfect. And after you get done joking about, well, <laughs> you know, then an honest person will say, well, of course I'm not perfect. But they think they're better than 90% of the people in the world, better than most, and thus they resist the idea that they are sinners. They're counting on relative uh, human righteousness. I'm more good than bad. Uh, when I was um, growing up in the Roman Catholic tradition, it, it, there was this kind of relativity. Uh, I was better. I was, you know, I wasn't really, really good, but I wasn't really, really bad. So I was actually thankful that they had invented purgatory, where I could, you know, get rid of the little bit of badness that was left and enter into heaven. Uh, and, and, you know, there was a resistance to the idea that I was wicked to the core and that I didn't deserve to go to heaven. Uh, and, and this is the attitude of most people. And so that's the kind of righteous person I believe the Lord is referring to. The wicked man could count on God's mercies if he were to repent. That's a, a beautiful thing. This would kind of fly in the face of Jewish theology. You know, the Jews really felt... I mean, just read the book of Job. And they looked at Job and they said, well... You know, you, uh, Job, you know, what did you do? I mean, God only treats wicked people this way. I mean, you're out an ash heap, you're covered with boils, you're scraping yourself with a pot shirt, your whole family is dead except your wife who you wish was dead. Uh, so, what did you do? And Job said, I didn't do nothing, which is the original Hebrew. I didn't do nothing. And, uh, you know, there's that whole dialogue, and the Jew just had the idea that the wicked, that was it. You were, you were done for, you were toast. Now, Jerusalem would fall. It was time for a fresh start. Your previous righteousness was not enough to cover your sins. Your previous sins could be confessed and repented of. There's no direct application of this to us except to note that Christians can get to the point where we rest on our past achievements. We can relax. We can retire even from serving the Lord. I, all I can say to that is God forbid. 
Verse 13, when I say to the righteous that he shall surely live, but he trusts in his own righteousness and commits iniquity, none of his righteous works shall be remembered, but because of the iniquity that he has committed, he shall die. Again, when I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, if he turns from his sin and does what is lawful and right, if the wicked restores the pledge, gives back what he has stolen, walks in the statutes of life without committing iniquity, he's going to live. He shall not die. None of his sins which he has committed shall be remembered against him. He has done what is lawful and right. He shall surely live. Now this seems to favor the wicked, but not really. It just gives everyone a level playing field, a fresh start. If you think you're righteous, you're not. If you think you're wicked, you can repent. The fall of Jerusalem announced a few years hence, uh, or a few verses hence in a minute, what I meant, was a game changer. Any hope the exiles had of God changing his mind about the Babylonian captivity would be dashed. A fresh start, a new perspective was going to be needed. I mean, imagine you're waiting, 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 waiting for God to, to kick out the Babylonians for you to go back to Jerusalem. And all of a sudden the message comes for real, not just through Ezekiel, who you should believe, but the message comes, Jerusalem is gone. The temple is destroyed. Everything's been taken out of there. Jeremiah hid the ark. Uh, it's, it's done. This is a, a defining moment. Uh, we, you know, our nation's had a few defining moments. You and your life will have some defining where Everything changes in a moment. And you have to start again. Over the years, I've talked to a lot of believers who needed a fresh start. Some of you are in that category. God is good to give you a fresh start when you've ruined your life through sin and disobedience. God will give you that fresh start. Verse 17, Yet the children of your people say the way of the Lord is not fair, but it is their way which is not fair. When the righteous turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity, he shall die because of it. When the wicked turns from his wickedness and does what is lawful and right, he shall live because of it. Yet you say the way of the Lord is not fair. O house of Israel, I will judge every one of you according to his ways. God was clear in the law. You sin, you die. You turn, you live. It's very, very simple and very straightforward. Seems fair, but fair or not, it's the way things were in the 6th century. If you ask me, life seems more unfair under grace. The wicked prosper, the righteous suffer. Among believers, we see good guys and gals struggling while others who should be disqualified go on prospering. When things seem unfair, I have forgotten that my life is hid with Christ's. I've forgotten that I can have fullness of joy because I'm walking with Him. I've forgotten that He has designed my circumstances perfectly to continue being transformed from glory to glory into the image of Jesus Christ. And just the, the, the fact that I have those feelings, that God is unfair and I have those complaints, is an indication, an immediate indication, I have my eyes off the Lord and on to some other situation, some other person. And so I'm not in that sweet fellowship with the Lord. What does it matter what God's dealings are with His other servants. I don't know everything that's going on in their life. I just need to be concerned about His dealings with me. And if He says to me, Gene, all things work together for the good because you love me and you're called according to the purpose. I've begun a good work in you. I'll complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. I still don't have to always like the work He's doing. 
Sometimes, I mean, the body work is rough. A lot of bondo on me, you know, and, and stuff. But uh, it's just him and me. And, and in the end, that's all it'll be too. Him and me looking each other in the eye uh, with the hope of him saying, well done, thy good and faithful servant. Amen? Amen.